Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, please. Before we get to our scripture here, um, we need to have some help today after the service moving the chairs and pews around. Uh, There's going to be some carpet cleaning that's going on this week, and um, we need some of you to help out with that uh, after church. And then there's going to be a need to be a separate team to help set things back up on Tuesday or so before Wednesday evening services. And I won't be around here. Um, Brother Legit is overseeing that and taking care of that. So if you can help with that today to just, I think, I'm moving half of, half of things around today. Uh, but if you can help with that, would you see him? And then also if you can help on Tuesday night um, to get things ready to go, or even early Wednesday, I'm not even sure exactly what his whole plan is, but if you can help the second go around, would you please see him as well? And he will organize all of that and get that taken care of, okay? And you pray for us, please. Um, after today, we won't see you for a couple of weeks, and pray for our team, our group, uh, heading over to Lebanon, and was asking the Lord to enable us to be a blessing, a help, an encouragement, to serve, to labor, to do whatever, and, um, and to pray for souls to be saved, um, for the Lord's work to be done, amen? And we really do need your prayers, and we ask that you'd be serious and sober-minded about that, please. And uh, we'll look forward to coming home and sharing with you all that the Lord has done with us. Amen. And <clears throat> encourage you as well. So, um, yes. All right, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, in our text verse, is verse 8. We'll look at a couple of other verses in here too, but mainly the Bible or verse 8 is our text, and the Bible says, But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Um, we're going to talk about the commissioning of the Lord's church this afternoon, but um, let me start by uh, just referring back to what it is that we're celebrating today. And again, we celebrate Resurrection Sunday every Sunday. Uh, But there's an emphasis on it today because without the resurrection, our faith in Jesus Christ is vain. It is worthless. And we can rightly say that the whole of Christianity, all of our belief System, all of what we say we believe and practice and do in life, the whole of Christianity is built on the fact that Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus rose again, defeating death, defeating hell forever. And without that, we have no foundation. Without that, our faith is vain. And as Paul said, we are of all men most miserable if it's not true. And we've talked about the resurrection this morning, and we're going to build on that this afternoon because the 
we see in our text in Acts 1 and verse 8 the commission that Jesus gave to his church. But the first part of this chapter gives us some clarity as to the purpose of Jesus' post-resurrection ministry in instructing and preparing his church for what he wanted them to be doing. Let's look back just a little bit. In verse 1, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but... All right, so we're going to stop right there for a second. In the first part of this chapter, it really does give us some clarity as to the purpose of Jesus' post-resurrection ministry and his instruction to his disciples, preparing them for what he was going to have them to do. Notice verse 3, especially of the, at the end of verse 3, but verse 3 talks about how Jesus showed himself alive by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days. So the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus lasted 40 days, okay? But then notice this statement, and here's what he was doing in that time. Speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Here is the purpose of the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus, speaking and teaching his disciples of the kingdom of God. Now, look at verses 6 and 7. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Notice what their, their focus was in verse 6. What was their focus? Well, their focus was still on an earthly kingdom. And remember how the disciples believed that Jesus was the Messiah but they thought that he was going to be this conquering king and deliver them from Roman oppression. And, and then Jesus dies and all their hopes and dreams are shattered. But they should have believed what Jesus had already said to them and so on. But they're still at this point in time of the mindset. Is it, is it now? Is it now, Lord, that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're talking about and focused on a temporal earthly kingdom. But notice what Jesus says in verse 7. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his power, but ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now in verses 6 and 7, they're focused on the temporal kingdom, but Jesus says that's not really the focus. That's not really what you need to be concerned with right now. That's God's business. 
but there's something I do want you to focus on. Does that make sense? The implication is that the Lord wanted them to be focused on the spiritual kingdom and be busy helping people get into that spiritual kingdom of God through salvation. Don't focus on the temporal. And that thought flows perfectly into verse 8, in which Jesus then gives the marching orders of what a true New Testament church needs to be about. And it's called the Great Commission. In Acts chapter 1, in verse 8, that we've already read, this is actually the fifth statement of the so-called Great Commission in the New Testament. And since these are the only marching orders given to the Lord's churches, it's very important that we understand it, that we study it, and that we practice it. I was telling our Sunday school class this morning that a church that has lost uh, the vision for evangelism and preaching the gospel is a church that is going to die. A church that has lost its vision for evangelism is a purposeless church. It is to be the lifeblood of a New Testament church because the purpose of a New Testament church, which is the Lord's church, is to carry on the work and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as His body here on this earth. So a church is not a social club. A church is not just a fellowship. A church is not... Uh, to, to be about programs, and, and it's not wrong to have some programs, but the emphasis and the focus of a New Testament church has got to be the commission that Jesus Christ gave to His church. The whole post-resurrection ministry of Jesus was teaching concerning the things of the kingdom of God and encouraging and challenging his disciples for what he's about to hand them, to give them to do, which we find in verse 8. But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So I want to talk about the commissioning of the Lord's church, and we're going to look at other New Testament passages, namely in the Gospels. The first thing that I want you to, <coughs> to understand or to note with me is the attributes of the Great Commission. The attributes of the Great Com Commission. This answers the question, what exactly does the Great Commission involve? And now, when we go back and look at some of these other passages and we compare the five each of the Gospels and in the book of Acts, what we note is that the commission is made up of three different things. And to alliterate it or to help us understand it, uh, I've entitled them to, uh, here's the three parts of the commission. Make them, mark them, and mature them. Make them, mark them, and mature them. Let's consider the first one to make them or make disciples. This involves evangelism. It, it means to evangelize in the world. And when we do that, it means a couple of different things. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. In verse 19...
Let's back up just a little bit here to verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now, we read back in Acts 1, verse 8, that Jesus said, Ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. We read here in verse 18 that Jesus says, All power is given unto me. And just for your understanding, the word power in this verse, in verse 18, is the Greek word exousia, which means authority. And so Jesus says, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth, and now I'm giving you, my church, my authority to do what? And he says in verse 19, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now we're talking about the first part of the commission, to make them. It's involving evangelism or to evangelize in the world. And when we do that, it means, first of all, as we find here in verse 19, go ye therefore and teach all nations. It involves teaching. Now, the word teach here, that's translated as teach, comes from a Greek word that has the connotation of enlisting or enrolling someone for the purpose of instruction. It literally means to become or make a pupil. And it's, it's the same word that is used and translated as taught in Acts chapter 14. Just keep your place here. And look at Acts chapter 14. In relation to the gospel being given in Acts chapter 14, the word taught is used. In Acts 14 and verse 21, the Bible says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. All right, and so it's, it's the same word translated as teach in Matthew chapter 28. We see that it's also the same word that is translated as instructed in Matthew chapter 13. Turn to Matthew 13. In Matthew 13 and verse 52, Then said he to them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder which bringeth forth out of his treasury things new and old. He said, Jesus says here, a one who is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven. Both of those words, instructed and taught, both of these are related to making disciples. It doesn't mean that we teach unsaved people the doctrines of the Bible. That's not what it means. Because 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 says that the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God uh, because, and he can't know them because they're spiritually discerned. So it's not teaching about the doctrines of the Bible. It's about making disciples of Jesus Christ. So that's what the word to teach means. It means to make a disciple. It also involves preaching, not, te not just this... Uh, understanding of what teaching here is, but it also involves preaching. Look in Mark chapter 
16. Mark 16 and verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In Luke chapter 24, you don't have to turn there, I'll do it for you uh, quickly, but here's another reference, Luke 24 and verse 47. Jesus says in that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And so in these two, we find that Jesus says to go into all the world and preach the gospel. In Luke, he says repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. And so when we preach, we are to preach what? According to Mark chapter 16, the gospel, go into all the world and preach the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 1, the Bible says here, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, declaring the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. And so it's the preaching of the gospel that when one believes, enables them to be saved. And Paul says it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in other words, we're to tell others what Jesus Christ has done. That He came to this world, He left heaven's glory, He gave His life, He shed His blood, for the sins of the world, and that we ought to believe on His name and believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and we shall be saved. So we are to preach the gospel according to Luke. Repentance and remission of sins is to be preached in His name. Now look at Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. So we preach the gospel and repentance and remission of sins should be preached in the name of Jesus. In Acts 3 and verse 19, let's back up just a little bit. Um, Verse 11, And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that's called Solomon's, greatly wondering... And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? And why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, and the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One, and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I walk that through ignorance ye did it, as did uh, also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. And because of that, he says in verse 19, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, 
that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And so in other words, as Peter preaches, he says, here's what you did. You crucified the Son of God. God foreordained that that should take place. It's been fulfilled. And now the command for you is that you repent and be converted so that your sins can be blotted out. The point I'm making is we are to tell them out there what they must do. Repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. If we preach the true gospel, we're going to be preaching repentance toward God. Thirdly, there is the witness. So as we make disciples, as we evangelize, it means to teach. It means to preach, but it means to witness. In our text in Acts 1 and verse 8, go back there. Acts 1 and verse 8, Jesus says, but ye shall receive power. Now that's a different word, even though it's translated as the same word in English. The Greek word is dunamis. It's where we get our English word dynamite from, and it means ability, divine ability. Ye shall receive ability after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And here's what you're going to do. Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. And so Jesus not only gives the commission, he gives the marching orders, but he also gives the power to do it. Ye shall receive ability after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses. Witnessing is the declaration of our personal experience of Jesus Christ. It's our testimony to the facts of what we preach. It's the real life application. Like, I know that I'm supposed to preach the gospel, and why can I confidently preach the gospel? Because I've received it myself, and I know what it's done in my life, and let me tell you about what God has done. It's our testimony to the facts of what we're preaching, the real-life application to it. Now, our witness is not to be man-centered, like this is what's happened to me. It's to be Christ-centered, that He is the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. He is the one who's taken away my sin. But that is what our witness is. It's the declaration of our personal experience of Jesus Christ. There's other, other Bible terms for that, like testifying, for example, or soul winning. He that winneth souls is wise, the Bible says. That's part of the Great Commission, but it's a part of the Great Commission that any saved person can do and should do. Anybody can tell of what Jesus Christ has done in their life. Any one of you who's known the Lord, can tell of what the Lord has done in your life. This is part of the Great Commission, making disciples, evangelizing. And it's actually the most important part. And the reason for that is because it has eternal consequence to it. Without this first part, without this making of disciples, the other parts of the Great Commission are really of no consequence. It's the first step. And you can't have the other two without this one. However, there's more to the Great Commission. 
the mission of the church than just evangelizing. Let's go back to Matthew 28 because in Matthew 28 we see the second part fully given for us. So the three components are make them, mark them, mature them. And here's the second part. Jesus says in verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The command to baptize is directly given here. It's indirectly given in the book of Mark. And I want you to turn to Mark chapter 16. And look at verse 16. Verse 15 says, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. All right, so it's indirectly given here in Mark chapter 16. But from these scriptures, we note four important facts regarding baptism. First of all, we note that baptism always follows after salvation. The order is important, and that fact is consistent with the teaching in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, let me just give you an example. In Acts chapter 2, Acts 2 in the context is the day of Pentecost, and Peter and the other apostles, they stand up and they preach Jesus crucified they're filled with the Spirit of God to do this, enabled to do this. And Peter says in verse 38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The word for in that verse, it means because. And so Peter has preached Jesus Christ, and he says, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ because of the remission of sins. The reason that you get baptized is because your sins have been remitted. Now let's skip down a little bit, and you're going to see this consistent here. In verse 41, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. In verse 41, we see that those who received the preaching and heard the message of repentance and believed it, they were saved then they were baptized. And we won't take the time to look at all these other passages of Scripture, but you'll find that every time that baptism is mentioned in the New Testament, you'll find that it's always following after someone has believed on Jesus Christ. It's believer's baptism. And the order is important. Now I want you to go back to Mark chapter 16 and look at verse 16 because this verse says, He that believeth and is baptized, shall be saved. Now, there have been many who take that phrase, and is baptized, and they tack it on to believing in order to be saved. There's a lot of people who, believe, who, who hold the doctrine and believe that you have to believe on Jesus Christ, and you have to be baptized, and then you can be saved. That's not what this verse is saying. Verse 16 does not teach that baptism saves. The words, and is baptized, is an appendage to the believing. In other words, the believing is what saves you. 
The baptism is an appendage to that. It's, it's, a, it's a mark of your, of your willingness to follow and obey Jesus Christ. I was trying to explain and use this illustration in my Sunday school class. And not everybody, Daniel, got the illustration right away. <laughs> do I need to do it again? I was trying to illustrate the fact he that believeth and is baptized is an appendage to the believing. And it's, and it's like saying something like this. We could say, he that boards the plane and is seated will get to the lower 48. The phrase, and is seated, has nothing to do with the destination. It has everything to do with the comfort of getting to the destination. You can get on the plane. Getting on the plane is what's going to get you to the destination. But you're going to get there a lot more comfortably if you sit down and enjoy it, right? And when we're referring to the baptism, he that believeth, that gets you to the destination and is baptized is an appendage to that that shows my submission to and following of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with salvation. So don't get confused when you see verses like that. And like, like we read in, in Acts, uh, uh, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. It's not so that you can have your sins remitted. It's because you've already had them done. It's like saying... Um, you're in jail for murder, right? You're not in jail so that you can commit murder. You're in jail because you committed murder. Does that make sense? And repent and be baptized for because of the remission of sins. Now, we kind of took a sidetrack there with some of that. What I really want to point out is baptism always follows salvation, but the second thing is that baptism is commanded to all Christians. This is what we understand from, from the text and from uh, the command of Christ in the commission. Baptism is commanded of all Christians. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, if the command is given to baptize, then it follows that there is a reciprocal command to be baptized. It makes absolute sense. Every believer ought to obey and follow the Lord in scriptural baptism. And then the third thing that we learn is that the doctrine of the Trinity is demonstrated here. Go back to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, and verse 19 again. Matthew 28, 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations as make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And again, the Trinity is demonstrated here, and it's seen in the word name, baptizing them in the name of the Father. Notice that it's singular. If the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were three gods, it would read names. But the Bible teaches that there is one Lord in Ephesians chapter 4 who manifests himself in three separate distinct persons, all co-equal, all co-eternal, all co-existent, three in one. And we are to mark them 
or baptize them in the name of the Father, <coughs> the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so baptism always follows salvation. It's commanded to all Christians. If there's a command to baptize, then it's obvious that there needs to be the command for us to be baptized. And then we find that the Trinity is involved. And then thirdly, we'll just stay right here in Matthew 28. Look at verse 20. Here's the third component or part of the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. This is the maturing of them. So make disciples, mark disciples, and then mature the disciples. Salvation and baptism are the initial results in the fulfillment of the Lord's commission. But this, the teaching them to observe all things, is the long-term part. In other words, the Lord doesn't save you uh, for this momentary thing. This is lifelong. This is, this is a lifelong uh, change in your life. And we find here that the Lord has given His command, but the Lord has not left us to do it of our own accord. It's not left to chance. The Lord gives us clear instruction about how to do this, to teach them to observe. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read a few verses in Ephesians 4. And out of these verses, we're going to see the purpose of the discipleship, the plan for the discipleship, and then the place of the discipleship. Look at the purpose of this discipling or teaching them to observe all things. In verse 13, let's consider this. Let's go back a little bit, actually. Um, let's start in verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth, or from here on out, be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men or and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him, in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now we're talking about the maturing of the saints and how the Lord has not left anything to chance. And he gives us instruction here. First of all, what is the purpose the purpose of the maturing of the saints. Verse 13 says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, So that we're not children anymore, but we're, we're fully grown, we're mature, we're adults in the Lord, we're stable, we're not carried about 
with every wind of doctrine. This guy comes along and he starts preaching this and like, oh, that sounds good. And we start to follow that. And this guy comes along and he says this and man, he's charismatic. I, I will start following this and believing this. No, he says, I, he, he says that you're mature, that you're solid, that you're stable in the faith. And then he says, so that you will come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's for the perfecting of the saints, the completing, the maturing of the saints. It's for the edifying of the saints. It's the the unifying of the saints till we come to the fullness of Christ, that we grow up into Him in all things. And here is Jesus, the fully mature, grown, spiritual man. This is what we are to be transformed into, the image of Jesus Christ, fully mature, looking like Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded, to follow the commands of Christ, to submit to the commands of Christ, so that we may grow into the image of Christ. That's the purpose. And then he talks about, in verse 16, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. As members of the church, we are the joints. And he says, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So the purpose is for perfecting and maturing and edifying and unifying and growing up into Christ and the effectual working in the measure of every part. What's the plan for the maturing of the saints? Well, verse 11 tells us, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers expounding and teaching God's Word that causes us, that spiritual food that causes us to grow and to mature into the image of Jesus Christ. Can you grow in your Christian life without pastors and teachers? Sure, you can. But not to the extent and not to the measure that the Lord wants out of you. If that were any other, if there was any other way and anything that could be different, then the Lord would have said so. Why did he put it in his word? Why does the Bible say that God sets the members in the body as it hath pleased him? Why is that important? Because it's God's will for you to be a part of a New Testament church where the word of God is preached and it's expounded and you take that and you apply it in your life and you grow into the image of Jesus Christ. That is the plan. So what happens when you start skipping out? What happens when we start taking it for granted? What happens when it's not so important anymore? Well, what happens when you don't eat? You become weak. You become anemic. You get sick. And you die. You're not going to lose your salvation if you're saved. But you're going to be weak and ineffective and sickly and be overtaken 
and not strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You understand the importance of it? It's not a light thing with the Lord is the point. Where is the place for this? Verse 16 says, from whom the whole body. Where's the place? What is the body? It's the Lord's church. Amen? It's the Lord's church. And God wants us to grow. It's a matter of obedience unto Him. And we can't do it any other way than what He has established. In God's mind, it's not optional. And it's not to be taken casually. And it's not to be taken lightly. Let me make a note here. Just as salvation is a prerequisite to baptism, so baptism is a prerequisite to edification. Because the baptism admits the believer into the church body where he then can be edified and built and grow. I think that it's sad to say it, but I think it's this right here is maybe one of the most serious shortcomings when it comes to the Great Commission amongst Baptist churches today. Right here with this third task of teaching them to observe all things. There's a, there's, in some churches, there's a huge emphasis on soul winning, which there should be. And sometimes there's an emphasis on the baptism after the conversion. That should certainly be impressed on the new converts. But the real work of feeding the flock, the real work of discipleship and maturing and causing to grow among the flock has been sorely neglected by many churches and by many pastors. At least, at least into the, the reduced of, of dispensing just a bunch of slop, if you will. But the hard work of teaching the Word of God and the hard work of, of discipling and, and uh, new converts and, and the hard work of other believers taking alongside a new believer and becoming the discipler and spending the time and doing the teaching of the Word of God so that they can grow in their... That's been something that is lacking in many churches. And praise the Lord for evangelism. You can't have the other two without this. But so many times it's, you know, preach, 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 evangelize, evangelize, and then leave them. Oh, they made a profession. Oh, let's run them through the baptistry like cows, you know, uh, in, in, in the market. And then... You leave them. Or they go off to some place and they preach the gospel. Oh, we had 65 people saved. What about the follow-up? What about the discipleship? The point I'm trying to make here is that none of these should be neglected. The making of the disciples, the marking of them, or the maturing of them. It's the command of the Lord to His church. That's a command of the Lord to Plaque Road Baptist Church. The post-resurrection ministry of Jesus Christ was speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. 
preparing them for what he was about to have them to do, to go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That command was given to the Lord's church. It was not given to individuals. It was given to his institution. That makes us unique. It makes us unique in the fact that we are the Lord's body, the representation of Jesus Christ right here in North Pole, Alaska, and we've been given this same command of the Lord. Let me conclude with this. It is God's will for every believer to actively participate in the fulfilling of the Lord's command. And he or she is to work in and through the ministry of the church of which he or she has been placed by God. You understand that? It is the Lord's will for every single member of Plaque Road Baptist Church to be involved in and through the ministry of this church, involved in evangelizing, involved in fulfilling the commission that Christ gave His church. Amen? Are you? Are you? When was the last time that you testified of what the Lord has done in your life? When was the last time that you were a witness of Jesus Christ? When did you tell somebody about what the Lord has done for you? To try to plant seeds of the gospel in their heart. Everybody's to be involved. And I was reading through and thinking about and studying all of these thoughts, and I was convicted again in my own heart that, you know, as much as I try to be sensitive to the Spirit of God and to be a witness for Jesus Christ, there are many that pass me by in a day that, if I'm honest, I would say I didn't do the best that I could to try to give them the gospel. And I don't want to be like that. Lord, help me. Lord, help me to be faithful to you, to not be so temporal and earthly-minded like the disciples. Will thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, don't focus on that. That's not your business right now. You're going to receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you, and you're going to be witnesses unto me. You understand that? We can be so caught up in the temporal that we forget or not mindful of the kingdom of God, the spiritual, the eternal. Lord, help us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, the confident expectation that at some point, whether it's in death, if this physical body, where our soul is separated and we're in the presence of the Lord, it's at the return of Christ coming for His own, that at some point we're going to see the Lord face to face. Jesus Christ was the first fruits of them that slept, and because He lives, we will live also. Praise the Lord for that. But in the meantime, Lord, you've given your church a job to do. 
And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be mindful and remember why we exist as a church and even why we exist as an individual to bring glory to the Lord, to serve the Lord. I'm bought with a price. I'm not my own. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Lord, I pray that we would take seriously the command of Christ. Lord, that each one would not sit here today and sort of dismiss the truths or pass them along, but Lord, that we would internalize it. And Father, that we would embrace it and even have the heart, Lord, help me to do better, to be about your kingdom, to be spiritually minded, to be heavenly minded, and to rely on the power of the Spirit of God. Lord, I pray that you'd make us fruitful and effective for you by your Spirit, by your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.